Hello, I'd like a big John burger, please, with extra treacle to wade through. Steve Fimes, good morning, how are you? Good morning. You're not by any chance, and I'm just taking a while. No, guess nothing here. to see here. Are you by any chance nope. talking about the new proposals Mm-mm. for food trucks? Mm-mm-mm-mm. Gosh, do you remember we talked about this? Maybe. It, it, it started in the budget speech. Anybody with a long memory can think Well, that was the, the one spring. thing we remembered from the that budget That was the one thing we remember from the budget speech. And I remember saying on this very show, get, wait until the bureaucrats get their hands on this and we'll see what happens. Boy, I didn't quite think, even I, who sometimes is on the sceptical side of the syndrome, a I bit. wouldn't, only a little, even I didn't quite think they'd come up with this. So where are we with this? So... John Chang in his budget said, you know, I've been to America, I've seen all these food trucks, we Great should have them dog. here. We should have them here. And uh, I thought, well, you know, actually it's a good idea, but the trouble is you've got the Hong Kong bureaucracy to deal with. So fast forward to what I believe is, is known in, in common language as December. Right. And uh, we hear, <laughs> it's almost unbelievable, that <laughs> not only... Will the government control it? Because God help us, the idea that just like they did in Chef, that movie. Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly it, like that. God help us that that we should have a situation where entrepreneurs should determine which businesses shall shall survive and which shall fail, and even worse. And if listeners are of a delicate disposition, please stop listening now. Members of the public are allowed to determine what they like and what they don't. I'm sorry for mentioning that, and I do apologise, and I won't say it again. Simple. So now what we've got instead is ten designated zones for establishing the aforementioned food trucks. And there will be a committee, get this, there will be a committee of people to decide whether the designs of the aforementioned underlined subsection B food trucks are creative enough, according to the bureaucrats, and then there'll be a food tasting. And that will not only be the officials themselves, but they will be joined by experts. Oh, look, forget about all this. Just give it to Maxim. God help us. Well, that's the bottom line, isn't it? I mean, the bottom line is that it, it will be the big corporations who get it. Which and, completely uh, goes against the grain of having these things. And the whole point about food trucks, I mean, John Chung, very nice of you to suggest it, but you don't get it, do you? They exist in places, not just America, they, they exist in Europe as well, where, where, where chaps and chapesses say, look, I can't afford to open a restaurant, but I'll tell you what, I'll get a moving vehicle and I'll set up on the street corner and I'll serve some really decent stuff, but it will be, you know, cheap and cheerful and you can take it away. But except in these and days, Steve, it's not cheap, it's really high-end stuff, isn't it? Some of it is, some of it isn't. You know, there's, there's a nice mixture out there. Mm. But, but, of course, you won't have that now. You'll have the bureaucrats saying, oh, well, you know... Oh. In fact, you even know... What sort of nonsense is going to come? We have one of these DAB legislators this week saying, "Oh yes, I think these 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 food trucks should be serving serving fusion food because we want the best of the East and the best of the West." Well, I'm I'm with Roly Lee and a lot number of other chefs who say fusion equals confusion. It's always <laughs> Horlicks that. And this particular lady then went and said, "You know, what we could have, for example, we could have crepe." Or, well, they will be or pretty or much guaranteed that's what they're going to be serving anyway. in another way, <laughs> um, filled with Asian contents. Gosh, her ferrable mind has come up with that brilliant suggestion. Of course, I wrote it down because I'm, I'm actually in the catering trade, so I write down everything. Yeah, I wondered if you were going to mention this <laughs> yeah. this morning. Have you, I, yeah, go on. I, I, well, you know... I'm, uh, it's no big deal because, you know, you've not I'm mentioned not, wanting to have a food truck, especially I, I, now. No, I'm not. Who's going to bother? I mean, you know, first of all, it's, it's no longer a cheap option. 
because they, they, you know, there are the aforementioned regulations and uh, then the aforementioned tests are followed by the aforementioned uh, circulation and um, testing, uh, no, not testing, um, location process. Guess what? Where are they going to put two of these trucks? I mean, they pile the irony onto the irony. They're going to put two of them outside the state-controlled... Um, Entertainment centres, otherwise known as Disneyland and, and Ocean Park. Well, that's going to be fun. So, good luck. If you've been to Disneyland, and I would immodestly say it, my company's actually done catering for staff there, not for the inside. So, I have been to Disneyland a few times to, to, to look at the catering they have there. It's ludicrously expensive. Ludicrously Disney expensive. won't like that. Surely, Disney well, won't like that. There will be that. There will be that. I mean, but it's... the fact of the matter is that these are, you know, these are just not the right places to put these sort of... The whole point about these things is they're supposed to be organic neighbourhood deals. But actually, you know what? Hong Kong has an enormous tradition of street-side vendors selling food. Just without the wheels. Just without the wheels. And but, they've all been closed down. And they've all been closed down. Gosh, you've, you've got that in one. How come the bureaucracy hasn't noticed that? I mean, you used to be able to go... When I originally lived in Saying Poon, well before it became fashionable, may I add, mm. the, the streets, High Street and all these places, were littered with very small street food outlets selling a lot of stuff that, frankly, I didn't want to eat. But nonetheless, some of it I did want to eat. It was sitting there on the side of the road. They've all been cleaned away. Because of progress. Remember progress? Yeah. It's very good for us. I was just looking, as you were speaking there, about what do people have to go through in the United States, where it's really popular. Yeah. Or, or Canada. I um, think it depends on the state, doesn't well, it? Well, it does. Here's one from Washington, D.C., for example. So an inspection is conducted. They've got, their, they've got yeah. some stuff to get through. Yeah. It says, uh, to verify the following. So it's proof of ownership, proper identification, vehicle licence. Fair enough. Proof of district-issued food manager identification card. That means a mobile kitchen licence in our parlance, doesn't it? Um, Something like that. The, 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 no, actually, there is... Food a, manager identification Yeah, part. there is a food management training scheme, actually, in Hong right. Kong. But anyway, it's, it's, food, that's actually quite straightforward. Food purchase, record storage and record keeping. Well, that's... Pretty standard. Pretty stuff, standard. Yeah. Uh, depot, commissary or service support facility meets vending unit operation needs. That just means that, that they can trace the food chain. Fair enough. Yeah. A uh, copy of licence for the service support facility and or a recent inspection report. See, they've got their legalese too. Yeah, oh, oh, bureaucracies are bureaucracies. But, but it just also, means you've got to have a licence. Yeah, and also they've got bigger towns with bigger streets yeah. and bigger street corners where these guys yeah. could pull up. I mean, um, it, you know, it's sort of... What I hate about this is this automatic assumption of bureaucracy. They always know best. You want to start I've a business. I've never heard of a government controlled food truck before. Well, though. neither have I. I mean, you want, to start, you want to start a business. We'll tell you what is creative. We'll tell you what tastes nice. And we'll tell you what the public will be able to eat. And incidentally, we'll tell you that if you don't come from a very big corporation, you can get on your bike. Yeah. Or on your truck in this case. And then you've got to think. Without this, where could you park a vehicle anyway in Hong Kong? Well, or even be, stop a vehicle no, anyway? Four mentioned designated zones. So, yeah, um, but the other thing, and I hate to um, drag commerce into business, but the other thing, which of course is so ludicrous about this, yeah. is the initial pilot scheme is for two years, with no guarantee of being able to continue. So, who is going? Who? Which small punter? is going to invest but that's it. half a million to a million bucks in a business that is only by 
um, registration by legal entity, only you're going to have a guaranteed future of two years. I would think most people would say, well, if that's the, you know, if I've got to depreciate that out in two years, it just really isn't worth doing. All right, flip a coin. What's the chances it's not actually going to be? What is it you call them? A small punter. <laughs> oh, I be think... realistic. Let's start at around 98% and work upwards. Mm. I, I, I really think they will, they will find one nominal tycoon's nephew to run it, and they'll say, oh, you know, young, young, young Mr Chan here, he's a very enterprising lad, he's done this all of his it's own. That thing you talked about last week, the intern scheme, isn't it? Yes, yes. I mean, it's, it, it's, just, it's just Horlicks of the highest degree. But the fact of the matter is that it, which business do you know of that can depreciate itself within two years. I mean, a business which requires serious investment. The answer is more or less none. Mm. That's why it's, it really is not going to happen. It won't be good. It won't be creative. Creative, whatever that means. It's a food truck. Mind and, you, uh, some of them, I mean, yeah, I yeah. take that back. Yes, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm yearning to have a, a McDonald's served from a food truck as opposed to... It from wouldn't a, go that from far. A, from a stationary stationary store. See, his idea, I think that's all the difference. His that, idea that in the first place better. was very novel. Nobody expected it, and he'd probably just watched Chef, and it was lunchtime. Yeah, but in principle, he in came principle, up with quite a good it's, idea. It's a perfectly good idea. <laughs> then goes into the bureaucracy. Oh, we haven't mentioned incidentally that the transport department has already said, "Oh, oh, oh, you think we're not going to get involved in this? Oh, no, no, we've got little plans of our own to to um, you know make l- registration and licensing of this more complicated because and expensive. as matters stand, it may all be far too simple. So." Maybe, actually, the bottom line here is that Hong Kong ain't the best place for food trucks. As you say, it's a smaller place, the streets are narrower, there are, in reality, not that many places they can park. But what you can do is change the mindset, and goodness me, we're, we're, we're in fairyland now, change the mindset of the Food Envi- Environmental Hygiene Department and say to them, you know, let's go back to where Hong Kong was. Lots of street vendors. That's entirely practical. Think of the groovy places where this could be. Whenever there are festivals on, we've got West Kowloon as a, as a site, well, and it's do. very funky. People do set up temporary Yeah, I know. And we've got, we've got the, the sort of front now, the, um, you know, down by the wheel, or that yeah, space where, yeah, where but, car shows and stuff. Yeah. That'd be brilliant. Yeah. Chain to garden, for goodness sake. Yeah. No, no, I mean, you know, the scope for, for having, saying, look, here's, here's the deal go get it, is, is enormous. But as soon as you put it into the bureaucratic machine, out spews this mountain of paper. So what you're telling me now is it's a government idea, it must be, because John John came up with it, yeah. and you're, you're saying that another government department will go, aha! Yeah. I, yeah so surely exactly shouldn't they that's all exactly. be on side? Shouldn't they all be on side? Why should they be? Well, I know, but... I mean, you look at, you look at the simple thing in Hong Kong. It's like the Hydra. All the it heads is. eating well, each you other. Look at the simple thing in Hong Kong, of um, which government department is responsible for trees? You know this great controversy cutting. about cutting down trees. Yeah. Do you know there are twenty government departments with full or partial responsibility for trees in Hong Kong? Twenty. Well, take it or leave it. <laughs> Let's move on to something else. Oh, sure. by the way, before we do, what actually was the reason why we needed this in the first place? I'm not knocking the idea, but just out of curiosity, was I think, there a reason? Well, John Jung's original rationale, which is a perfectly good one, was that, you know, it adds to Hong Kong's tourist attractions, makes, makes the place more lively. I actually agree with that. It's not going to happen, but I do agree with it. 
And what about the notion that everything is about boosting tourism? And we really all know what that means. <laughs> well, I think even even the dimmest bulbs which are lit in government offices have kind of noticed that this entire policy of tourism equals getting more people from the mainland to buy handbags is not a sustainable policy for the future of Hong Kong. So they have kind of got the message that right. a bit of diversification might be in order. Yeah. But everybody's seen the recent tourist arrival figures, the trend. It's going in one direction and it ain't up. What do you know about copyright? Ah, what do I know about copyright? Well, here we, here we go again. You've got a situation where... In fact, the government is doing something perfectly reasonable, which is updating the copyright laws to, you know, match the, the new world that we have of the... Good luck policing it all, of, though. ...of the internet and blah, blah, blah. Well, good luck with policing it. But, you know, you do have to make your laws fit for purpose, and the copyright laws in Hong Kong are not fit for purpose at the moment. So no one objects to the idea that you need new legislation to, to match the needs of the time. What people are worried about is whether this law will turn out to be a monster. and Because it's really be about something else. Because it's yeah. really about something else, and that the subplot becomes the main plot. And the subplot that people worry about is reasonable use, and whether this law will prevent people getting on the internet and criticising, satirising... Through songs and stuff. And, and what have you some of the wonderful people who run this, this, this community. I mean, the idea that anybody would <laughs> criticise C.Y. Leung is, of course, absurd. But yet, people do that. And sometimes they do it very amusingly. And they use proprietary materials. But how do you it. go after them, though? What if you're in Canada and you fancy having a go at him? Well, yeah, how do you get? How do you send? That's um, tough brown stuff, isn't it? Do you I send mean, a registered yeah, letter to them or something? Yeah, yes, I wrote here But that's what I'm on about. That's the well, whole point. Well, as always, you know, particularly anything to do with the internet, enforcement is an issue. But, I mean, there's nothing wrong with, with, with at least making the effort. But the question is, do they really want to make the effort to protect people's copyright? Which, as somebody, you know, who produces stuff that gets copyrighted, I'm also quite keen on. Or, no one's going to nick your stuff. <laughs> no one's going to bother, I know. But, or, or are they more interested... In, in suppressing free comment and free expression. That's what people worry about. Mm. And isn't it interesting that, that all of the usual suspects went clucking around yesterday, going, oh, it's very unfair, they called quorum and, you know, oh, well, you know, boys, if you're so interested in passing the law, why don't you get turn off up. your backsides and turn up? So Today's morning brew, the sincerity was brilliant there, wasn't it? I want to say hello to Kevin, who says, would you please comment, Steve, on Carrie Lam's 2007 letter that seemed to confuse the applicants for the small house policy. He also goes on to write a little bit about LC2, but I think we should stick on the first one, if that's yeah, good. Yeah, because the, ha the, the small house policy is back in the news following the conviction of several industri industrial... Industrious. <laughs> indigenous villagers. Industrious who, indigenous who, who villagers. Actually not convicted for handing over their right to build um, the... Uh, so, uh, let, sorry, let's start from the beginning, otherwise mm -hmm. I'll confuse myself, even if nobody else. The, the beginning of the story is that under the law, male, uh, male villagers who are considered to be indigenous have the right to build, a, build on a 700-square-foot plot 
a house that's Rock given. On. And I think people who live up there know this all too well. They know that all too well. <laughs> I, I, we're not telling people in the New Territories things they don't know. And that right ludicrously extends to people who live in Toronto, people who live in Doncaster, people who live in Guatemala. Doncaster? I'm sorry to mention that on a, on a family show. Yeah. Um, but there you go. So, in other words, that right exists regardless of whether you're actually going, in practice, you're going to take it up and go and live in one of these um, 700 square foot three-storey houses. In other words, 2,100 square foot Mm. houses, which in Hong Kong terms is a very big piece of real estate. Mm. So what these villagers were convicted of doing was falsely making an application for development of this plot after having sold on their ownership rights to a property development company. Right. So far, so bad. Because obviously the scheme anyway is really absurd but when it's abused as it commonly is and indeed their defense was they had no idea this was wrong because it was done so often and so commonly there you go you know it's the the it's that it's the great um <laughs> defense of a drunk you know what why are you arresting me Ossifer? everybody's drunk around here well you know it's as they say in the law, um, the law applies to everyone whether or not they get arrested for it. Mm. But they've been arrested. So, so far, so bad. Then you get the Hung Yi Cook, Hong Kong's most powerful organisation, putting adverts in the paper saying, oh, we support these poor old villages. It's an outrage. It's an outrage. It's an outrage. <laughs> I'm 533. Yeah. It's an outrage. And, you know, why are they being persecuted for doing something which is perfectly acceptable? These are our rights. They're inherited rights and blah, blah, blah. So, on the one hand, you have the Hongi Cook, who will defend the indefensible at all times. On the other hand, you have the government. I think this is what the, the um, email refers to in the shape of Carrie Lam, sort of suggesting... <coughs> small house policies, the time for reviewing it might well have come because we keep hearing the government wailing and wailing about, oh, there's not enough land around for building houses for people that they can afford. Right. Okay. Well, if you're dishing out land for free to so-called, and I keep saying so-called indigenous villages because, of course, so many of them don't live in Hong Kong. But so what, they may be from indigenous families, but what they does don't that, live here. What's that indigenous well, I think it's it's. Um, I mean, if you come from Chifu and your family come from there, are you all are you indigenous to? I I, I can't. <laughs> remember, I, to be honest with you, I can't remember what the de- the, the exact definition is. Yeah. But I mean, I think it means that they were here from the earliest. They can trace their lineage back right the way back to the earliest colonial times. Now, of course, the policy of the small house grants only came in the 1970s, actually not that long ago. I mean, that incidentally was during the period of colonial atrocities, which we're all against. It's funny how some of these colonial atrocities are better than other colonial (laughs) atrocities. Yeah, what about all that decolonialisation stuff we talked about two months ago or whenever? Which we hear about so often and and is (laughs) Mm. so So now you have the, the indication by Carrie Lam that the policy was going to be reviewed. We heard only this week from no lesser person than a very tall chief executive in Hong Kong that, well, you know, this is a um, it's a bit of a problem, but, you know, um, we mustn't rush to do anything about it. In other words, the boys up north haven't said that you now are allowed to challenge the Hongi Cook because somewhere 
deep in the DNA of the basic law is no one is allowed to question the Hongyi cook about anything. That's historical too, I'm sure. That's also not a new thing and is a legacy of our great historical past. So, I mean, this is a bit of a mess. You've got the organisation who are representing the so-called indigenous people saying it's perfectly all right to ignore the law because we don't like it. You've got the chief (laughs) executive saying, well, this is a problem, but absolutely we're not going to do anything about it. You've got the chief secretary saying, well, something must be done, but (laughs) not by us, mate, because, you know, we're, you know, we've got jobs to look after. Food trucks. Food trucks to, to obstruct very busily. So what is the net result of this? I'll tell you what the net result of it is nothing. Yeah. They ain't going to change the policy. It will continue to be abused. And if there is a shortage of land problem, this will accentuate it. it it's not complicated. That's the, that's the outcome. Yeah. Well, Kev, thanks for writing. What are your thoughts? Let me know. Morningbrewer.thk.hk if you've got time. On we but go. While, while, we're, while we're on the basic law, and I know that listeners are, are gagging to, to know a lot more and to talk about basic law, as they do every day. Gagging. I, I understand that particularly at breakfast time. But we now are told, and this is this is really interesting, and as ever, if you read <clears throat> certain English language newspapers, you won't be fully informed about it, but you're, we're now told that this whole controversy over the building of the West Kowloon Terminal, that will be for the high-speed, tra- the terminal for the high-speed train going to Guangzhou, the whole issue... The push-me-pull-you, you mean. Yes, that's right. Um, And, hey, it's public money, so we'll spend as much as possible on it, but that's another subject. Um, We're now told that the idea of stationing um, mainland officials on Hong Kong territory to handle immigration procedures, these are security officers who can also, while they're here, um, exercise their right to enforce mainland law in Hong Kong. We're told that... We were told before that it's a mere technicality and people shouldn't get politicise it. They shouldn't get too excited about it. For goodness sake, let's just get on with the job of building the railway and everybody should shut up. We're now told by Rimsky Yoon, I love the name, um, um, apparently as the Secretary for Justice occasionally, um, that, oh, well, actually, you know, yeah, that thing about the basic law, tell you what, we might need to change it. And in fact, there is a simple way of changing it which is Annex 3, lists the mainland laws that can apply in Hong Kong inconveniently because the previous, the body of the basic law makes it quite clear that immigration and customs control is a matter for the SAR. Mm. Um, So to override that, you have to put in Annex 3 a law saying this law from the mainland will apply in Hong Kong. For example, in Annex 3 is the... um, uh, but, for example, it's the, 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 the garrison, the station in the garrison here. That is according to mainland law, it's not according to SAR law. Anyway, wait a minute. Haven't we been told day after day after day that the basic law is sacrosanct, it cannot be amended? Have we not been told, in relation to the West um, <coughs> Kowloon Terminus, that the basic law isn't a problem? Uh, it's all, all covered, nothing to talk about. So why now are we hearing that actually uh, maybe it is a problem? And, oh, by the way, when we said the basic law can't be changed because it's set in stone, it can be changed any time we want it to it be. It does sound that way. I this is playing fast and loose. I wonder what conversations are going on at the other end of the railway. I wonder if they're saying, so should we have the Hong Kong boys up here? 
Oh, I'm sure they are. Because, I mean, the, the anybody who hasn't noticed that the intention of the mainland authorities to whittle down the reality of one country, two systems, anybody who hasn't noticed that that's an ongoing process no. is living in a very, very deep hole. The fact of the matter is that the spirit of the basic law is entirely clear. In fact, it's so clear it's actually spelt out. Well, this is a, it's almost an IQ test, this one. How would you do it? Would you have a bloke on the train? Well, what you could do, funnily enough, is what's happening at the moment. There is a through... You know, yeah, how people does, keep talking about how that this. happens. People keep talking about <laughs> Some this. People have been as saying though, this. As though it doesn't exist. Go on, then. <coughs> I've been on it many times. There is a through train. All right, what and happens? What happens is you get to Hong Hum, you go through Hong Kong immigrations, you get to Guangzhou, and you go through mainland immigration. End of story. Right. That sounds pretty simple. It is pretty simple. So what's the problem here? Um, no, not really. What's the problem here? Well, I mean, you could say that it would be easier if you just went through one set of immigration controls, but the fact of the matter is that in most jurisdictions, <coughs> you go through two sets of immigration controls. I don't think it's a big issue. I mean, look, when you take a plane from Hong Kong to Shanghai, which is just another way of going to the mainland, nobody says oh, well, the Shanghai authorities or the mainland authorities from Shanghai should be based at the Hong Kong airport to check the passports and what have you. Yeah. Because what happens is when you land, you go through <laughs> passport control at the other end. I mean, this is just absolute bonkers. So the only... What's well, the furrowed brows in this room at the moment? <laughs> well, ain't they just? I mean, anyway, or, or let's say... For example, you can fly from Hong Kong to Guangzhou. I'm not quite sure why you'd want to do that, but it is it is possible. There are aeroplanes that do such a thing. But nobody says that you have to clear mainland immigration. So where does this come from, then? Well, funny enough, it comes from the government of the HKSAR. But it's just adding another process, then, that it's adding it seems a, we don't need. Yes. It's, it, it, what it is doing is, is saying, let's get more used to let's get more comfortable with the idea of having mainland officials based in Hong Kong. We know the basic law says they're not supposed to do that, but we can change that. I mean, if you were of a mind, and obviously I'm not, but some people are of a suspicious mind, they would say that this was part of a deliberate process to whittle down the autonomy. Assimilation. Assimilation. By the Borg. Closer integration, all these things. Well, you know, if that's what you want to do, at least be courageous enough to say that. Yeah, well done. Be up front. This is, I mean... Your logic defies me. Hey, Alan, good morning. He said, indigenous, for our information, mm. is defined as descended from males in Hong Kong when the new territories became part of Hong Kong in 1898. Right. Makes sense. Thanks for that. that. does make sense. Top Thank listeners. You. Top listeners. I tell you. What else you got? You just sit here and it all comes, comes, comes to be, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely fantastic. Well, I think just basically, because, and I know Backchat um, talked about this today, I think uh, we should just talk about LC2. That was yesterday, but yes. Yes. It's, uh, it's uh, I mean, her death is, at the age of 102, is hardly unexpected. But, you know, she was a very major figure in Hong Kong, and it's quite interesting. She's one of the only only figures I can think of who, who when she passed away, was lauded equally by the mm. pro-government and the anti-government side. I mean, the people in the anti-government side say quite rightly that she was an emblem of protest. I mean, she was the person who sparked some of the biggest street protests in Hong Kong. The pro-government people, of course, are very happy that later on in life, particularly after she was defeated in the 1995 
um, Ledge Coalition by Sito Wa, she turned very bitterly against the Democrats and became a very stalwart uh, pro-government supporter um, to the extent of... Uh, well, she she also sat in the provisional um, Ledgeco. She she did many things which 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 made the new order very happy. So I mean, she's a person who went on a long political journey, and I think the reason why she's not really warmly remembered by the majority of people of Hong Kong for the fact that she switched sides. What she's warmly remembered for is the way, and I think she should be remembered for this, that when the interests of the poorer people in the community were just rough roughshod uh, rode over by the colonial administration she was one of the people who stood up to them mm. and on a how did she do it she did it by street protests by mobilizing people gosh isn't that what's well, she wouldn't today? be. She wouldn't be the yeah, exactly. She wouldn't be the first politician to jump ship. Although sometimes it's a bit hard to understand this. And that was the second part of Kevin's email. He just said, you know, she was quite right to condemn the colonial system faults, but she never did the same for the other side. Basically, well, she she wasn't so much she didn't condemn it. I mean, she condoned many things um, which the New Order was doing, much to their pleasure. I mean, she was also against the Occupy movement, etc., etc. Well, you know, that's her opinion. Absolutely. I respect her opinion, but but. In my opinion, what her big legacy to Hong Kong is as someone who stood up for the underprivileged. 